When Sophia starts dating Rocco, Dorothy is put in the position of playing strict parent. When it's believed Rocco robbed a bank, things get even hairier. But that isn't the only drama going on at the house on Richmond Street. Blanche and Dorothy have not only found but read Rose's diary. With such personal invasion, will Rose be able to trust the girls again? Will Dorothy be too busy busting Rocco to worry about Rose? Will Blanche's perm continue to get taller? All of that and more in today's episode, Larceny and Old Lace. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come Before we get into the episode, let's talk about the title, Larceny and Old Lace, which was inspired by the 1941 play, which became the 1943 Frank Capra film starring Cary Grant, which was remade in 1962. The story is based on the real-life serial killer Amy Archer Gilligan, a woman who murdered for insurance money. Luckily, today's story doesn't involve poison, just theft. No, I can't. I won't. I can't go through with it. I won't marry you and that's that. Look, don't you see, dear? Marriage, it's a, it's, it's a superstition. It's old-fashioned. It's, it's, I, I, oh. Now on with the show, where we find Sophia coming into the living room wearing her dark and floral wallpaper dress we've seen many a time before and holding lemonade. When Dorothy, in her magenta blouse with khakis, is greeted by her loving mother with a, what the hell are you doing here? Unfazed by her ma, Dorothy shares that she's home because her salon appointment had wrapped up earlier than expected. Loving as always, Sophia absolutely incinerates her daughter, saying a beautician can be done early if they're working on famed supermodel, Sports Illustrated cover girl, uptown girl who was once married to Billy Joel that made iconic appearances in the vacation films, Christy Brinkley. But on Dorothy... Well, for her, they need to squeeze every drop of makeover time they can spare. Well, are you going to go for it? Uh, here? For starters, sure. Why not? Don't you swim? How's water? Exhilarating. Chrissy Brinkley was also Jerry's wife on Parks and Recreation. Oh my gosh, of course. Did you have, did you have a thing for Christy Brinkley growing up? I knew Christy Brinkley from the vacation movie and I never liked that sequence because I really didn't like a dad that would do that. Yeah. In that scene, he's like, I mean, he's definitely going to cheat on her. Yeah. Kind of publicly. They're publicly, like out in a it, pool at yeah, a hotel or a motel. At a motel. It's so, it just, gro- it always grossed me out. Me too. But she was into it, was like, I, I just never liked that. That's not for me. me Even too. as a child. No, thank you, dad. Dads don't do that, please. Dads don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying dads don't do that. I'm saying dads, dads comma, do not do that, please. Exactly. Yeah, dads do do that, and that's doo-doo. <laughs> and that's canon. 
After Sophia demands Dorothy return to the salon, Dorothy knows her extra spicy tone is because she's hiding something. She knows he is there. Who is the he she speaks of? Why, it's Rocco, the man Sophia met at the police station when she was there to catch the mugger who stole her purse, and Rocco was there after being caught spray-painting a penis on a billboard of the Bud Light spokesdog Spuds McKenzie. The Bull Terrier found worldwide fame during the campaign, and yes, her name was Honey Tree Evil Eye, or Evie. That was the dog's real name? The dog's name was Honey Tree Evil Eye, or Evie for short. What were we going to Oh, Dr. Cheeseburger is what our dog's name <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty big, that's a better name. That's a much better name. Dr. Honey Tree would be nice. It makes me think of um, the grumpy cat. Uh, in what in what way? Because they had to lie about what they had named it. Oh, what was Grumpy what was Grumpy Cat's name? <sighs> so once Grumpy Cat got famous, they were like, Oh, uh, their name is Tartar Sauce, but it's spelled T A R D A R and there were uh, conversations that um because of its face, they had actually called it like the R word. Yeah. And once it was famous, they were like, oh, it's tar- tard, tartar, tartar. Yeah, tartar sauce. That's it. So very, you know, it's like a honey tree evil eye, a.k.a. Spence grumpy McKinsey. cat. <laughs> rips to grumpy cat and spuds. I mean, honey tree evil eye. Yeah, double rips. Honey tree evil eye. Uh, good drag name? Possibly. Okay. Just throw it I guess it, I, if it was made clear that it was... From Spuds McKenzie. Well, obviously, everything you'd wear on stage would be related to. Yeah, but is it Bud Light? Yes. And those weird dogs. What kind of dog is that? Bull Terrier. Not handsome. No. Scary Long Face. Another good name for the dog. Scary Long Face, a <laughs> lot of pink. Yeah. Scary Long Face, a lot of pink. <laughs> but boy, did he ride that skateboard or whatever. She did that. And yes, Spuds being played by a female was, of course, a big deal because humans are all just troglodytes posing as decent, productive beings. Another controversy was that many politicians and parents felt the adorability of Mrs. Spuds was Bud Light's way of making drinking alluring to children. That's how I got into drinking. Was from Spuds? Yeah, I just wanted to get drunk with my dog. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> she died. <laughs> now that was a female dog named Lady. She was no Spuds McKenzie. She didn't really want to live with us. If you opened the gate, she would just run. <laughs> and then my mom and dad Maybe would have to- Maybe because you were feeding her beer. I never did that. I love Lady. My, my, my mom would drive. My dad would be in the Volkswagen van and they would drive alongside the dog and my dad would throw open the side door and like run out and get the dog when she, when she wasn't, you know, she couldn't see it coming. What kind of dog was Lady? She was a mix. She was found, I think, uh, on the streets and she looked sort of like, hmm, like a farm dog sort of. Okay. Like a kind of longish haired. Um, well, she was from the streets, baby. Yeah, she was. She didn't want to be confined by your suburban lifestyle. No, but she was a sweetheart. 
Live to be. Lady. Like 15 or so. She was a good girl. Good girl. Goodbye, lady. Ribs to lady. Been dead forever. Rocco's rambunctious behavior had Dorothy concerned about the life he was living, especially if Sophia was involved in it. What kind of life, Sophia scoffs. He's over 85 years old. He's so certain he doesn't have much of a life left, he only uses the express checkout lane at the grocery store. Heading out to the lanai, the ladies come across Rocco, who is sitting at the table playing cards and smoking a long, thin, expensive cigar, a.k.a. a stogie. Playing Rocco is legendary actor Mickey Rooney. For anyone unfamiliar, Mickey was kind of the male Judy Garland. They were both young actors together, had both gotten their starts in vaudeville. They were MGM co-stars. They were both forced to take uppers to perform and downers to sleep. And while Judy ended up having romantic feelings for Mickey, the five foot two actor wasn't into it. Even when I was younger, I wasn't the biggest fan of this episode, or at least his scenes. I felt like I could always sense his ego, be it earned or not, his attitude towards his philandering ways, which even ended his marriage to Lana Turner, along with six other wives in the same manner. He said, I began to meet my obligations to a good many of the gals in town who were dying to meet me. Who wouldn't want to go out with me? I had my own car, I had some nickels in my pocket, and I was somebody. That being said, Mickey and Judy did care for one another on a very deep level. Eventually, he did sort of apologize for his portrayal of an Asian man in Breakfast at Tiffany's, where he wore buck teeth, put on yellow face, and spoke in an atrocious accent. Some of his better known of his nearly 400 projects were National Velvet, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Pete's Dragon, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Babes on Broadway, The Black Stallion, and The Fox and the Hound. I said good morning. A good morning. And let's not forget that amazing Simpsons episode <laughs> where he's auditioning to be Fallout Boy and he says this. All right, I tried. Fortunately, we have a perfectly good Fallout Boy right here. <laughs> Jiminy Jellickers! Jiminy Jellickers! Jiminy Jellickers! Right away, it's clear Rocco's Brooklyn attitude is what drew Sophia to him. Without hesitation, he compliments Dorothy on her moxie by saying if she changed her clothes and raised her voice, she could pass as Frank Ralph Nito, a.k.a. Frank Nitty, the Chicago-based mafia leader and first cousin to fellow mafioso Al Capone. Sophia isn't appalled by Rocco's comment. She's actually taken aback that he knew Frank Nitty. So he goes on. He also knew Dutch Schultz, who was out of New York and made his riches with bootlegging. Rocco also claims to have hung with Scarface and Nitty's cousin, Al Capone. He was a celebrity of sorts, founding the mafia in Chicago. That was until he went to prison because of those pesky taxes. You're talking about Al Capone? Yep. And then died from syphilis. Oh, did he die in prison? No, he was really, remember, didn't you watch that drunk history where he was like fishing in his swimming pool? Oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, syphilis will get you. All of this name dropping has Dorothy concerned Rocco wasn't just friends with all of these people, but was actually in the mob. With what the kids today would call a dead-ass stare, Rocco proclaims to have been the Al Capone of Detroit running things there. Yes, Sophia announces. That's right. He ran Detroit's marathons, of course. Yeah, marathons. Getting back to the game at hand, Sophia lays her cards out with joy, but Rocco has a better one, so she has to pay up. 
The cost? Her clothes, because they're playing strip poker. Coco, did you ever get into a game of strip poker or strip go fish or? Absolutely not. I did not like my body until about a year ago. And it's it's uh, it's a strained relationship. Does that help? <laughs> One time in gym class, there was a shirts and skins scenario. And Which I is was, so unreasonable. And I was terrified and I was so very lucky that I did not have to be skins because I think I would have. I don't know. Ran out screaming. Hopefully they cried, don't do that anymore. Gotten, got, got hit in the face with a soccer ball again. <laughs> trying to headbutt it or whatever that's called. My glasses went everywhere. <sighs> so let me get this straight. You took off your shirt and headbutted a basketball until you broke your glasses. Is I, that the story? I did not have to take the shirt off, but everything else, <laughs> yes. So no stripping. I would, no, I don't. I don't like those kinds of things, and I I would do that now. I would definitely play strip poker with you or any of our listeners <laughs> over Gmail, and we'll go one turn per letter message. Have you strip? Have you ever stripped poker? Uh, maybe like nothing serious, and like thinking we're being fun at like a weekend party or something. Being like, ah, I took off my. Sure, you made my bra. Ah. Well, good. It's good to have boundaries. <laughs> That's right. Not all your friends need to see you naked. Me naked. Anyone naked. <laughs> Thank you. I prefer it if I haven't seen my friends naked. Yeah. Though I have seen... Hmm. I don't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me think about this. Who have I seen naked? Who do I know? I've never seen anybody naked. I don't know anybody. When Dorothy declares the fun times are over, Sophia says the most vulgar thing possible, asking if her daughter thinks she owns this casino like she's or something. That's because the late 80s were a blissful time when he was just known as a slimy real estate jerk in New York who also owned casinos and other buildings. Then he used his slimy image to get popular in gossip columns, which gave him what the kids call clout, which allowed for more loans he couldn't pay, which allowed for more businesses he was upside down in, which allowed him to be on TV and say racist things and then get people to back him and support his hateful ideas. And then he became president. And now I can't leave my house because I could get sick or into a fight with someone wearing a red hat. And we have to go watch the commission hearings after he tried to, like, overthrow the government. Oh, my my God, I wish we could go back to the late 80s. Ah, I need a moment. After Dorothy leaves, Sophia gripes to Rocco about how bossy she is. He feels the same way about his kids. It's like, what, because you're almost 60, you know better? In the kitchen, Dorothy finds a teal-dressed Rose at the table drinking coffee, who she then violently interrupts with her frustrations towards her mother's choice of man-friend. Since she was just shouted this information, Rose is trying to keep up. She's upset about Rocco, right? No, Dorothy responds. It's because her mother is seeing Spiro Agnew, who was the 39th vice president, until he had to resign in 1973. He might have helped Nixon win the presidency, but then he got into big trouble for getting payouts from contractors as a county executive, then governor, and then as vice president. Since you can't be a vice president and, like, take bribes or extort people, he got into legal hot water before pleading no contest to tax evasion. 
He resigned shortly before his criminal boss, Nixon, would have to do the same. Great name. Great name. What a dickhead. Rose doesn't see the issue. He's a cute, sweet guy. What's the harm? Well, Dorothy doesn't find him or the rebellious behavior he's bringing out of Sophia to be cute. Just the other night, Sophia came home with his compression socks in her purse and NyQuil on her breath. She doesn't know what they were doing, and well, she doesn't want to. Compression socks and NyQuil sounds like us going to bed. (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell you which one uses what. Very relatable. Yeah, it is. Sorry that we're so naughty. Oh, that'd be so great if I was like, oh, I don't have my compression socks. And then you're like, I don't have my NyQuil. And I'm like, I have NyQuil for you. And, <laughs> and I have like, you have compression socks for me. Socks. That's how it would be. Sorry, they got all mixed up last night. Things were so wild. My stockings are sticky with NyQuil. <laughs> Rose has a question, and it's not about the socks. It's about Blanche. Rose has been feeling like Blanche has been upset with her, but she can't really figure out why. Cue a brown pant and sweater set wearing Blanche, whose perm is even bigger than last week. Seeing her, Rose greets Blanche with a good morning. After a brief silence, Blanche glares at Rose, asking the Mary Poppins knockoff if she must always be so chipper. Shrugging the rudeness off, Rose turns back to Dorothy, asking her to keep an eye out for any bully-like behavior from Blanche. Well, Dorothy did notice it, so she confronts Blanche about her response a response Blanche defends. She is upset with Rose, and it's because she has read her diary. But Dorothy's only concerned with how Blanche came to be in possession of the private object. Simple. Rose had forgotten it out on the table, and then, with just a little bit of prying with a knife, pop, the lock was open. What was she supposed to do, not read it? Dorothy is uncomfortable with Blanche's ethics surrounding the book, but she doesn't leave when Blanche starts to read from it. The first entry she shares, that Rose can't stand living with these two pigs. Sure, it seemed like a financially sound idea to share rent costs, but is it really worth it to have one squealing and the other one belching in her face? Blanche owns her squealing and confirms it is Dorothy who burps sometimes, but it's usually after a Denver omelet which consists of eggs, cheese, ham, peppers, and onions. It's not that Dorothy is upset about being called out for her bad manners. She's upset Blanche has crossed such a boundary. But she does clarify. It's the potato, onions, and eggs Spanish omelet that repeats on her if she doesn't take her antacid. When Blanche pushes, trying to get a validating response from Dorothy, she refuses to engage. But Blanche won't stand for being the only pissed-off piggy, so she asks if Dorothy would like to hear more of the horrible things that they were called. But Dorothy stands firm. Knowing her friend's willpower isn't that strong, Blanche scoffs and sets the diary on the table, leaving Dorothy alone with it. She tries to ignore it at first, but her curiosity gets the best of her, and before she knows it, she's bashing the diary on the table. Hoping to cover up her bad deed, she coughs in a pathetic attempt to cover the sound of the smashing table. (laughs) This loud noise has Blanche back and glaring at Dorothy pathetically. Since Dorothy clearly does want to read it, Blanche suggests she just uses what works, picking it with the knife. The next day, Blanche is sitting on the floor at the coffee table wearing a mint skirt and yellow jacket and going to town on the diary's lock, 
When Dorothy, in a red blouse and tan pants, comes in, she urgently approaches Blanche, confused as to why she was breaking their agreement to not read any more of Rose's diary. Since they only came to that agreement because they couldn't get the lock undone again, I guess they were so scared of Rose finding out, so they kept locking it back up, but when Blanche remembered other tools they had in the garage, she decided to give it another go. When they hear the door open, they start to hide their dirty deeds. But no need, it isn't Rose, it's other ne'er-do-wells, Rocco and Sophia. Aggressively pushing a shopping cart containing a television, reindeer head, and other assorted goods, the couple is making their way to Sophia's room. Turns out that that stuff is Rocco's prized possessions. Concerned about break-ins that have been happening in his neighborhood, he wants his stuff saved at Sophia's. Dorothy doesn't need to worry about space for it. Sophia has the room. Dorothy gives in and lets his stuff stay, but has one request, that the lovebirds keep that bedroom door open when they're in there alone. In his plaid jacket and snazzy tan hat, Rocco waddles away, agreeing to the strict rules of Dorothy, a.k.a. Mrs. Cleaver, the matriarch of Leave It to Beaver. Coming into the living room in one of her best outfits is an all-gray rose with flowing pants and a tight-waisted blouse. She's very chic and surprised to find her diary on the coffee table. Getting to the lies right away, Blanche promises whatever the scene looks like and whatever it makes her think, well, it isn't true. And what she happens to be thinking is that the late George H.W. Bush was married to his mother. I'm not sure if Barbara being called Mrs. Bush or her elderly, pearl-clutching demeanor through the years had her thinking that, but no, that wasn't the case. I believe I've heard references to George H.W. Bush calling his wife Barbara mother. I agree. I was looking into that. Yeah. I didn't see anything specific, but I do remember, and I think going back to another Simpsons moment, I think he's like, okay, mother. That, yeah, like, kind of that old-fashioned whatever that is. I guess you can kind of explain it because, like, my grandparents always did that, but they had five kids and all the kids, you know, it was mom and dad or whatever. And so they just referred to each other as like, oh, mother, oh, father. And I hated it. That's what I always figured, too, is it had just had something to do with having a bunch of kids yeah. and you just called each other mom and dad. But it was cute. I mean, when they were really old and there weren't kids around, he'd be like, oh, mother, would you get me a sandwich for the?" That's very cute. But it's also I hate it. And it's I like will when... never call you father. Only daddy. <laughs> As Blanche and Dorothy try to process the last 10 seconds of their lives, they quickly realize they've gotten away with it. That is until Rose notices the lock is messed up, almost as messed up as the fact that they were looking at it. She may find their behavior unacceptable, but that's how Blanche feels about what Rose wrote about them. As daft as Rose can be, she displays wonderful boundaries here, calling her friends out right away for going too far and invading her privacy. I guess I should say former friends as Rose stomps off angrily, leaving Blanche and Dorothy in the dust. Upset about what happened, Dorothy finds her way into Sophia's room later that night, seeking support for her problem. Sophia agrees there is a problem. Accidentally petting the reindeer or maybe baby moose or water buffalo or whatever that head is, Sophia thinks Dorothy's problem is that she stopped using her hair removal cream. When a frustrated Dorothy turns on the light, Sophia realizes her mistake. As Dorothy starts to talk about Rose not talking to her, Sophia tells her to celebrate. Before they can get further into it, Blanche arrives with her own problem, and it's the same as Dorothy's. 
Even though Sophia is refusing to provide support for the girls, they're still begging for it. Then Rose knocks at the door. Denying any more guests and taking advantage of Rose's St. Olafian nature, Sophia does her best answering machine impersonation. So after the beep, Rose starts to leave her message. See, children, before we had cell phones, we only had landlines. To find out who called, you'd have to go home and push play on the large tape recorder-like device, and you had to play your messages. Fed up with all of the antics, Sophia shouts for Rose to just join them. But when she enters and sees her betrayers there, she'd rather talk to Sophia at another time. Seeing as Sophia's already in bed and had been asleep, there isn't another time. It's not like she's the post-1963 7-Eleven, which had been open for just those hours since 1946 before deciding to go to 24 hours. Knowing that they were in the wrong for invading Rose's privacy, the girls apologize right away. But this is a bigger issue that will require more than just an apology. How do you learn to trust the people you've trusted the most when they've broken your trust and heart? When Rose doesn't forgive them immediately, Dorothy gets defensive, comparing what Rose wrote with their actions. Except that expressing oneself in the privacy of a diary is much different than actively crossing boundaries. As the girls argue about trust and sorries, Sophia is still in the dark, interjecting questions about what the hell is going on. It's a good thing Sophia asks because it clears everything up. As Dorothy and Blanche admit to reading Rose's diary but being hurt from what she wrote about them, Rose is shocked. She didn't even know the girls when that diary was being written. It was from her time in the 4-H club and she was raising pigs for a fair. 4-H being a club for school-aged kids that has been known for their focus on agricultural education but has branched out with programs for mental health and STEM. Looking to one another, the girls realize how silly they've been. A little confused, Blanche asks why she would keep a diary for such a thing. Simple, it's the only way to get the badge for it. While the misunderstanding has Blanche and Dorothy feeling better because Rose hadn't said that about them, she's still upset. They weren't called names, but she was violated. To get these fools out of her room, Sophia sarcastically attempts horrible shadow puppetry before going into a story. Picture it, Morocco in the 30s. Yes, Rose, the 1930s, not 30s like temperature. She's not Today Show weatherman Willard Scott. Real quick, though, was was Willard Scott the original Ronald McDonald? Is that him? I know it sounds very random, but I think Willard Scott was the original Ronald McDonald clown. Sorry for bursting and throwing that at your face. Hey, it's okay, Ellen. We need to know. McDonald's hamburgers, french fries, and milkshake. Watch for me on TV. We'll have lots of fun. He created Ronald McDonald. Holy crap. Willard Scott created Ronald McDonald. Okay, Wikipedia. The, the origin of Ronald McDonald involves Willard Scott, who was a local radio personality who played Bozo the, ta- the Clown in D.C. Wow. From 59 until 62, and then performed as Ronald McDonald, the Hamburger Happy Clown in 1963 in three different spots. For DC, and then I guess it was picked up nationally. Wow. And that's a fun fact. That's an amazing fact. Thank you, Coco. So back to Morocco. 
as friends were arguing over a camel, a camel whose humps Rose is more concerned about, but it didn't have any because it was a camel cigarette, not camel animal. But before we can find out what became of the cigarette, Dorothy starts interrogating Sophia about the point of the story. Well, since Sophia isn't being interviewed on a news magazine show, there really isn't one. For crying out loud, one minute she's sleeping, now she's in the middle of this drama and then being given crap for trying to make it better? For Rose, no story will help. She can't forgive her friends, and there's nothing they could ever say or do that would fix things. For her, once trust is gone, so is the friendship. And so is she as she goes back to her room, leaving Blanche and Dorothy devastated. Lucky for them, once she was in the hallway, she couldn't bear to not be friends with them, so she comes running back. As the group hugs, Sophia is happy to hear the news, not because things are fixed, but because that means they should be leaving now. As the hugs and giggles continue, Sophia's frustrations grow until she throws a bag at them, demanding that they leave. Good thing she did as the bag breaks open, revealing the contents inside. The bag, being one of Rocco's items, was stuffed full of cash. Sophia doesn't know why Rocco has it, but she knows she won't be going cheap anymore on dates, like when they go to KFC, which is hard to imagine the Sicilian chef tolerating such food. But next time she does, she's going to be getting all white meat and a biscuit. As Blanche digs through the bag, she is shocked to find there are thousands of dollars inside. Pressing Sophia for more answers, she explains what happened. They went to the bank together that morning. He took the bag inside with him. She waited in the car. Then, a few minutes later, he came back and told her to make a run for it. She assumed he just needed to take a leak, since that's usually the case, and he is taking medication for his prostate gland that forces him to urinate fairly consistently. That's all Dorothy needs to hear to be convinced that Sophia's no-good mafia wannabe boyfriend robbed the bank. Picking up the phone to call the police, Dorothy is stopped when Sophia pulls the receiver away. She is certain Rocco is no bank robber. Besides, she still likes smooching him. Have you stayed with many bank robbers because they were good at smooching? <laughs> if you know, you know, metaphorically. Metaphorically, yeah. Definitely. I thought so. Am yeah. I one of them? Never. That's right. You just, you robbed my heart. Are you saying that she doesn't have her priorities straight, that she's choosing to stay with a bad boy just because she likes smooching? Not in a judgmental way, I guess, but but because I get it. <laughs> I did it. Oh, you've done it. You've stayed with a bank robber because of smooching? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, 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 I have. So it's yeah. it's what we do. It is. Because it feels good. We like smooching. And we like those smooches. <laughs> The money isn't that big of a concern for Sophia. It's not like Rocco can go to jail just because they found some money. Then, right on cue, Rocco calls Sophia. Talking to him, she shares they accidentally stumbled across his cash, and it made them curious as to where it came from. With a few, uh-huhs, yes, and right, okay, she tells him bye and hangs up. Without looking anyone in the eye, she admits he confessed. Well, he robbed the bank. Let's eat. In a tizzy, the parade of women scurry to the kitchen. Sophia's focused on getting a snack, but Dorothy is more concerned about how they need to report the robbery. Sophia can't bring herself to do it. Not only does she care for him, he admitted he did it out of love for her. This makes Dorothy roll her eyes. But for Rose, it has her recalling the most romantic thing anyone had done for her, which was when a St. Olafian trained his sheep to lay down in a field and spell out Rose. 
As Dorothy stands firm in pushing to call it in, Sophia continues to defend Rocco's actions. Not only does she not want him in trouble, she feels a sense of guilt. She must have made him think the only way to please her was to spoil her, so to keep up with her, he needed to rob the bank. Instead of reporting him, she just wants to talk to him, then get him to turn himself into police. If after all that he still doesn't go, she will call it in. This has all taught her a valuable lesson. Moving forward, her relationships will only be about sex, no emotions. After Sophia leaves, Dorothy puts the phone down and has a moment of pity. She may not like Rocco, but he does care for Sophia, so she can't be that mad. Especially, as Blanche points out, it's so romantic. This elicits a conversation about the most romantic gestures someone has performed for them. Starting with Blanche, she shares about the time she and George were out on a drive. It must have been really early in their relationship as they hadn't been intimate yet. Heading home, the car ran out of gas and they started to get heated up. After recreating the love scene from Titanic, Blanche shared that the only improvement the night would have had would have been a blanket, candles, and wine. Then, 10 years later, they took the same route in the same car when they ran out of gas. Getting out of the car, Blanche was directed behind a tree. There, in a basket, was the wine, glasses, blanket, and candles. It was perfect, the most thoughtful evening. As Blanche gets choked up thinking about her late love, Rose can't help but feel sad for her. Oh, if only she had looked behind the tree the first time they were out there, then they could have had two perfect evenings. Her response gives me some real Turtles picnic vibes. For all of you, since literally no one knows this book, I wish so badly it wasn't out of print. I do own a copy because it explains my childhood humor development. Please reach out to me if you know the book The Turtle's Picnic because we are kindred spirits and I would love to hear from anyone else that has ever heard of this book. There you have it. (laughs) Did you already say Gmail us? (laughs) No. Gmail us. Now on to Dorothy's story. Shockingly, it is Stanley who has been the most romantic with her. Long ago, going to a fancy dinner, they cheered with champagne, which Dorothy then chugged which I thought was a plot whoopsie because of her age, but in New York, the drinking age would have been around 18 at the time. After she choked on the drink, she learned Stan had put her engagement ring in the glass. Wait, engagement? So she was a teenager and pregnant? Not an oh boy, but oh baby boy, let's not drink when we're pregnant. Stan didn't really seem seem too concerned about the rules like that. Nah. Where the number is... Nah. Appropriate or more so. Mm-mm. No. Was he much older than her? That's a bit of a plot whoopsie. I believe oh, we've talked about it yeah. earlier because he was like going off to the war and and uh, there is a time he mentions his age. So depending on which timeline you go by, there are a few years where she would have still been in high school and he was like 24 or something. He's Oof. A, he's a slimy guy. He's a scuzzball. Oof. With her engagement ring working its way through her digestive tract, she was able to retrieve it three days later, after she pooped it out. Pregnant, at 18. Digesting and pooping out a ring. Oh, Dorothy really has had a difficult ride. Dorothy was more dignified in how she told the story, emitting the poop aspect, but that was what left Rose confused as to where the ring reappeared from. After a deadly stare, Dorothy says, 
her ring appeared on the home shopping network. Coco, most romantic gesture you have given or received. I have no memory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Nope. Nothing. I have nothing. That's not to say people haven't done that. I just, I guess I'm not grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, on, I cannot conjure a single time. Well, here's what I think that means, because I think you and I are in the same boat in to a degree with that. I think it means that those things don't carry the same amount of weight. They really As don't. other things. Yeah. Like, that's really nice, but... I think maybe for a birthday or something, you've gotten me flowers, but it's not something I sit and be like, oh, I wish you would give me flowers because I can sit on the couch and you'll just rub my feet or you'll sit in front of me and I'll rub your shoulders. And that's like very romantic to me. And it doesn't have to be like a big gesture like that. Well, that's a good answer. And I wish that was the answer that I had thought of. But is that, do you feel like kind Definitely. of the same? Yeah, oh, yeah. That it's the little things. Yeah, just like you getting me something that I need from another room. Little things like that. Oh, yeah. Or preparing food or, you know, just I told, care. I told uh, my brother, we were talking recently, and I said something that really, I think, brings a lot of respect and value and love into our relationship, yours and mine, Coco, is um, that we're always using our manners. And not because we're, like, stuck up or something, but we're always saying please and thank you to each other. Oh, yeah. About literally everything. And... It always feels nice, and it always seems like, uh, I don't know, just an added level of respect that's naturally there. And, and I am always thankful. Yeah. I'm always thank you, thankful for you, whatever it is that you've provided. It's great. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. And We're I doing good. You. That's right. Now, I do have two romantic moments I'd like to share. Oh, fudge. One isn't you, and I'm sorry, and it's not that romantic, but it was more like, wow, I can't believe someone would do that for me, which was... They left downtown on Valentine's Day to go to Costco to get me a big mac and cheese that they then went home and cooked in the oven. And I was like, wow, that's something. But I think what topped that the other night was you were eating your cookie ice cream sandwich that you got from the ice cream truck and you were almost done. And then you gave me the last bite. We'd already been sharing it. And then you gave me the last bite. And that was incredibly sweet and romantic and thoughtful. Thank you. I wow, I did it. You did it with just a, with just a little piece of <laughs> piece of ice cream. Because it's the last bite of a treat. That's that's yeah. something. It's all a manipulation. <laughs> I want your riches. <laughs> all right, I'll put you in the will. Yes. Now that Rose will be preoccupied with thinking about that, Blanche gets back to the subject at hand. Legal or not, what Rocco did was sweet. Dorothy can agree with that, but she really wishes there wasn't that whole illegal aspect. With a deliciously sweet, soft tone, Blanche drives the point home. No matter how old or wrinkled you get, there is always time for romance. As the girls all hold hands, enjoying the sentimentality, Blanche then whispers for them, to never give up hope. Still unable to sleep, Sophia is lounging on the lanai when there's a rustling in the corner. Climbing the small wall, it's Rocco, and he has come to take Sophia away. But she won't go for it. He, quote, kissed her pleasure palace goodbye when he decided to be a criminal. Rocco won't hear it. 
He's got a brand new, unridden motorcycle waiting outside. They won't be taking it anywhere as he doesn't know how to drive it, and he's pooped from pushing it all the way to her house from the dealership. Before they even toy with the idea of leaving, Sophia needs to know how someone of Rocco's age and prostate condition could rob a bank. For a professional like Rocco, it was nothing. So why don't they just leave with all the money and spend their last years on a beach soaking up the sun? But Sophia just can't do it. Sure, Rocco's life seemed exciting before when she thought he was telling stories that were either just made up or from a past life. But now that it's real and current, she doesn't want a life of danger and or crime. This sends Rocco into full wedding singer mode. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! Because it turns out Rocco isn't a criminal. He's a liar. When Rocco realized how giddy Sophia would get with colorful stories of his old days, he decided his life, which was one of a cook at a hotel, wouldn't be good enough for her. So he made up his personal history in hopes that she would like him. As for the bank, that was just his life savings. What he had really done was gone inside and withdrawn all of his money, then acted like he was a robber, hoping that money would allow him to provide Sophia with the life she deserved. Sophia can't believe what she's hearing. Rocco can't believe there's a friggin' gate he could have walked through instead of nearly herniating himself to death climbing the wall. In a way, Sophia is moved. Money or not, he always treated her well. Another evening in the kitchen finds Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche playing Trivial Pursuit at the table using what looks to be a sorry board, but okay. Thinking it's a personalized version, when Rose starts reading a question about a football player wearing pantyhose, Blanche blurts out a player's name, team, and the hotel in which they did their dress-up. Of course, this isn't the correct answer, but it's not like Blanche has to go looking in a magazine to see a man in pantyhose. The answer, of course, is Joe Namath, one of the greatest and most famous football players. He drew a lot of heat in 1974 for appearing in a campaign for pantyhose, proving that even the most manly legs could be transformed. Now, I don't wear pantyhose, but if beauty mist can make my legs look good, imagine what they'll do for yours. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, everything looks better through beauty mist. Especially your legs. Now it's Rose's turn. Asking about a Mozart serenade, Blanche gives Dorothy a look of, as if Rose would ever know this, before completing the question, which Rose answers immediately, Ina Kleine knock music, which has been used in cartoons and sounds like this. Do you know what that means in English? Eine kleine knock? Yep. Nope. Well, I think, I mean, knock music to me sounds like night music. Yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's night. Um, that's Eine kleine. One. Well, let's see. A little night music. Hmm. Eine kleine knock music. Coco, I really appreciated in this moment where they're, the girls, before they even ask Rose, they're kind of laughing at the idea of her knowing but then she does know the answer, and then she follows it up with knowing that it's from Looney Tunes, which is totally valid. Like, however you know the information, you still know the information, and that's very much like you. We'll be watching Jeopardy, and it's like a whole section about 
Nordic gods or Greek gods or something. You're like, oh, I know that all from my video game. Yeah, I played God of War, and now I know all about, yeah. Yeah. This, the serpent that wraps around the world and stuff, for example. How weird. Yeah, so it's like if that if that information is contained in your brain, why does it matter if you got it reading a book at your university's library or playing a video game or from Looney Tunes cartoons? You still know. It reminds me of a... A famous quote from a scholar named Dominic Toretto, <laughs> who said it doesn't matter if you win by uh, an inch or a mile. Winning is winning. And that's also true of knowledge. Yeah. Thanks, Knowledge Dom. is knowledge. Ride or die. Mm-hmm. Family. <laughs> As Rose twaddles on and on about the Looney Tunes moments in which she had heard the music, an annoyed Dorothy requests the rule book from Blanche. Once given it, she bops Rose on the noggin, which effectively wraps up the evening. While Blanche and Rose are ready for bed, Dorothy isn't. She's wanting to wait up for Sophia, who is calling to tell Dorothy that she'll be staying at Rocco's for the night. After a very heated conversation that consisted of parent-child role reversals, Dorothy demands Sophia comes home. Once being told something that couldn't be aired on television, Dorothy gets even more upset before hanging up. Checking on her friend, Blanche asks if Dorothy's mother is okay. Continuing with the whole treating my mother as the child thing, Dorothy hollers, oh, fine, when she's being a pain in the ass, she's my mother, before storming out and hopefully getting some rest. While on one hand, I wish Sophia and Rocco got to have more airtime or at least a longer relationship, it's also upsetting that she continued seeing him. Just like it's upsetting, Rose moved on so quickly from the breaking of trust with the girls. It doesn't matter that Rocco was lying to impress Sophia. It was still a lie. Out of the gate. Besides, wouldn't you want someone to love you for you? As for the girls, I realize this is a lot of personal transference, but this is my show, so deal with it. Let me start by saying, I love them. Obviously, I devote many hours a week to this show celebrating them because they mean so much to me. But I feel that there are a lot of lessons to learn in the mistakes they make as much as the things they do correctly. Rose should have stood her ground more firmly. The girls crossed a serious intimate boundary. Not only that, they were convinced Rose felt those horrible things about her. So they not only can't be trusted, but they think she's a bad person. A confusing combination. At the very least, she could have asked for a more meaningful apology, one that showed they understood the gravity of their actions. Then they should have given her space to process things, let her decide if she can still be friends. I really related to this moment because it may seem to the girls or even viewers that what they did wasn't that big of a deal. They just let curiosity get the best of them, and they knew that they were wrong for doing it. But Dorothy and Blanche aren't children. They knew in the moment what they were doing was wrong. Sure, relationships, especially close ones, will have moments of arguing or disagreement or even little white lies. But like Rose said, if you can't have trust, how can you have a friendship? For Rose, she needed to weigh if their dishonesty and disrespect was bad enough that she would need to leave. But I hope she didn't decide to stay just because she didn't want to put in the effort to find new friends and possibly a new place to live. Now, unlike our usual ending, I want to talk to Coco about this because we had some big feelings about the situation. It's true. I'm ticked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, no. It's a huge violation, an enormous violation, and it's it's just not for anyone else but the person writing it. And they, did they apologize at all? Kind of. They're like, well, we're sorry, but you. 
were writing those things and then and then which they is kind not of, a not an equal thing no, no. <laughs> and then it's kind of uh they kind of apologize like oh it was about pigs oh our bad like to that extent but no there was never really true acknowledgement of we understand that we violated your privacy we thought horrible things about you we thought you were capable of thinking those things about us yeah, they didn't really fully own it. It was like, oh, of course we read your diary, but it wasn't even about us, so it's fine. If a friend did that to me, I would snap their friendship off like a breadstick. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. It kind of made me feel the same way as that vacation clip where like Chevy Chase with K Christy Brinkley, mm -hmm. where he's acting like really bad. Yeah. And then and when we were talking about it earlier, it made me think like, oh, it makes sense that like, the uh, tsunami of divorces that like crashed over America in that decade, you know? Mm. Um, and I think it's just kind of the same sort of attitude, I guess, just like um, mm -hmm. a kind of like acceptance, acceptance of like of, of, of bad, really terrible behavior, mm -hmm. really like offensive, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In that clip, she sees him naked in a pool, naked with a naked woman frolicking around and then she kind of causing plays it a off. scene and they just like the whole family just kind of rolls their eyes and like all right we got to get up early in the morning and it's like uh that would be a serious issue that would be a lot of because it's trust and i think a lot of times people get hung up on what things are like you can look at this and be like oh it was just her old 4-h diary it's not about what they looked at it was that they crossed that line and she can't trust them. And it's really sad. I mean, I, I get it's a sitcom. Things have to be wrapped up in 20 minutes. It's not real. I get that. But it's so sad to see someone you love so much like Rose settle for these behaviors because maybe it's out of fear. You know, you and I were talking about how people should look at other relationships the same way they hold a microscope over their romantic relationships because so often it's like, well, I wouldn't tolerate a man that did this or he better not do that or, oh, she does this. It's fine. I'll tolerate it. And you're so there's so much scrutiny in a romantic relationship. But what about at your, <laughs> but what about at your job? Do they treat you OK? Are they kind to you? Are they honest with you? What about your friendships? Are they kind to you? Are they honest to you? And for someone like Rose, you don't want to see that fear of loneliness or that fear of starting over or that all of those feelings that come with it or hurting them. I would say that that, that you do want to see that, but you also want to see her stronger as a result. No, not, right. Not, not, we, not like in a lesser position, I think. No, yeah, I just mean you don't want to see her choosing to to stay with people that might hurt her to avoid those things. Yeah. But yeah, it is she because she does deserve better. They all do. If she had been... You know, if they really felt she felt that way, then they they have their right to feel a certain way. But it has to be separate. That was the other thing, too. Everything was. Yeah, but you said. And it's like, that's a separate conversation. I can t you and I can talk about what I said and I can explain it. But it doesn't overpower or cancel out your actions. And it's frustrating. It is. Stay off of social media, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a, a 4-H diary waiting to explode. <laughs> no kidding. Talking about pigs. <laughs>
So yeah, we just we we wish better for Rose. She's she deserves better treatment than that for sure. She's and she's and really I think more so because she's like a completely open person. Mm -hmm. She doesn't hide anything. I don't. I mean, within the plots of the right, but, right. But personally, I don't feel like she really does. And she said right away they were like, "You said this, this, and this," and she said that was this, this, and this. She had her answers. Of course, I didn't say those things. Why would you think I said those things? That's a whole nother layer she could oh, be yeah. upset that about. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing, yeah, that they thought that of her, mm -hmm. which, and, which makes makes me and I think you think that that's how they are. Yeah, I was just going to say, when we were watching, you were like, they think that because they are thinking that. Yep. If if Blanche, they and we've seen like that. that. We've yeah. seen that when they fight and they get into name calling, really bad name calling and cutting those <laughs> really deep. Of course they're going to think that. If Rose bothers them, they're probably like, oh, that disgusting little pig. Yes. Like Blanche would absolutely think that without thinking twice, which Rose can Rose can say it and it's devastating. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, okay, you can't have it all the ways. Anyway, as always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we take on the high seas with Rose's Big Adventure. I'll try to make a fart cannon. Oh, uh, oh sorry. <coughs> what was that disturbed? Ooh, ah, ah, ah. I have to cough. <laughs> He's got a huge honey tree evil eye. <laughs> if you know what I mean. She. Jiminy Jillikers. Jiminy Jillikers. You want to kiss Mickey Rooney? Now don't start that again. <laughs> Get that taken care of. Is yeah. syphilis still a thing? I think it exists, but I believe people get it treated earlier so it doesn't like consume your brain cells. Well, Gmail us. <laughs> With what the kids today would call a dead ass stare, Rocco. Pro With what the kids today would call a dead ass stare, Rocco pro proclaims. Damn it. With what the kids today would proclare. Oh, proclare. <laughs> Well, my tongue feels awful, too, and I think it's because of water. Thank you. <laughs> Tough room today. <gasps> what are you talking about? No, I'm just... You acted like yesterday was a tough room, too, and I felt like I've been not tough at all. Uh... <laughs> Why do you hate me? I don't hate you. Well... I just keep saying the, the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the guy that played the Joker in the Batman TV show? Cesar Romero. Yeah. It sounds like that. Yes. And, but, he, but he ruined it. Yes. Riddle me this. <laughs> Different character. That's the computer Zoolander beat up. Candy Mac bubble back. <laughs> Thank you for calling the law firm of Cesar Romero, Spiro Agnew, and Candy Back bubble back. What do you call Candy back bubble mac? Candy back <laughs> bubble mac. <laughs> it's usually after a Denver on. Oh my gosh. Why is that hard to say? It's pronounced Denver on millet. <laughs> Did you hear my enunciation? Uh huh. Okay. It's the potato, onions, and egg Spanish omelet that repeats on her if she doesn't take her hand. And he asked You remember when Family Feud was on and they were 
Steve Harvey called uh, a butthole ham flower. That's all. I just wanted that on record. Mikey P, the flycatcher. <laughs> Robot bitch. <laughs> See, children, before we had cell phones, we only had landline. Landlines. Comparing what Rose. <laughs> what Rose wrote with. What Rose wrote. Rose wrote. Comparing what Rose. Oh. <laughs> mm. uh, that seriously. That burp, the beginning of it sounded like the opening like note of Spirit in the Sky. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's exactly what that sounded like. You know what I'm talking about? I think you know what I'm talking about. I do. <laughs> and it reminded me of the movie Contact, obviously. Obviously. And Jake Busey's face. Yeah. <laughs> mm. ah. Oh. Thank you. Wow. I'm That's all right. You're out of it's having a Brad Brain Day. Brad? Brad Brain Day. Yeah. Who's is your is your new name Brad Brain? Hello, this is Brad Brain Day. Brad Brain. Brad Brain Day. Uh, good day, is Brad Brain Day. <laughs> so why don't they spend their? So why don't they just leave with? Take a breath, man. Yeah. Take a breath. <laughs> it's getting hot. It is. I'm hot. Mozart's ghost. <laughs> that's right. You know what that's from? The net. That's right. <laughs> and that's why we're in love. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.